Well, we had a good season in 78. Obviously, the next season uh, became a very important season when we could really, realistically, uh, make, make a bid for the championship. And we did some recruiting. I came over with um, Trevor Weimart, Roger Kenyon, uh, Ray Lewington, um, a lot of Brits, uh, uh, some of them that uh, I knew, knew of and uh, I'd watched in the old first division. Um, and, um, you know, I was quite, quite excited. We were always known as the kind of British uh, mafia. Uh, we had excellent uh, um, Canadian players, Bobby Lenarduzzi and Bob Belitho, Buzz Parsons. Uh, all these players uh, were, was, had such a big contribution uh, to that season. A pivotal moment took place around the halfway mark of the season when um, we brought in a player by the name of Alan Ball. You, know, you could be the man to turn it around. Well, I dearly hope so. We had played for England in the uh, 1966 World Cup, and uh, as a kid, I, I watched that game, and you know, all of a sudden, Alan Ball, I, I would be playing beside Alan Ball. Well, Alan Ball was playing uh, in Philadelphia. Um, what had happened is a number of the rock stars, including Mick Jagger, had tried to replicate the, uh, the uh, New, New York Cosmos and bring, bring in star players, and they didn't work out. So we were fortunate enough to be able to go there and say, uh, can we trade Alan Ball to Vancouver? And he came in, and he was the catalyst, there was no doubt about it. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey now, how's it going, everybody? My name is Tim Hanlon. As announced, thank you, uh, Corey Coates, our dulcet-toned uh, introducer, uh, announcer uh, for four years now. We appreciate uh him uh, stepping up to the mic each and every week and announcing me flawlessly. Well, okay, it's a recording we did four years ago. What are you going to do? Uh, Tim Hanlon, that's the name. And Good Seats Still Available, that's the podcast. And uh, that's the place you find yourself this week. Thanks for coming by. It is our weekly little journey, uh, our little tour, a little excursion into what used to be in professional sports. That's our uh, our little niche. Uh, not so little. It uh, just continues to grow and grow and grow. And uh, we're back into soccer again this week and uh, a fascinating little uh, little tale we've got for you uh, with uh, our guests, Rob Sawyer and David France, two of the three guys behind a brand new book about Everton. Yes, the Premier League franchise, Everton and North America. The book is called Toffee Soccer and Toffee is obviously part of the nickname nomenclature of Everton. If you've uh, been a fan uh, for, the, for of the team since what? Geez, it's founding in 1878. Uh, well-known and uh, uh, probably the uh, one of the more uh, well-regarded clubs in Premier League uh, history. Uh, Darren Griffiths is the uh, third guy. He's not with us in this conversation. But David and Rob are, and we're going to get into uh, their new book called Toffee Soccer, Everton in North America. And we're using it as the background uh, for what is uh, an unknown, really, fairly unknown, uh, not to the, uh, to the naked eye, but with uh, some investigation in our conversation this week. The legacy that is Everton soccer uh, in uh, in Britain uh, and its uh, 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 connection to uh, the game in North America and in particular the United States. Uh, you may know some of the modern day players that have played at Everton. Uh, Wayne Rooney, John Spencer, uh, Mo Johnston, 
uh, Tim Howard, of course, Landon Donovan. These are all uh, mega players uh, that have played in, in Major League Soccer, uh, part of the U.S. national team in some cases, uh, Everton, part of their lineage. And and just the latest uh, expression, the latest uh, examples of a team that somewhat quietly has been very foundational uh, to the game in North America. And uh, it's uh, also sort of a, a, an interesting set of bookmarks that we can kind of sort of put into place. Uh, Everton was part of uh, that thing called the International Soccer League. We've uh, sort of danced around that topic a little bit, 1960 to 1965, that being the Bill Cox run, um, I, I, what will you call it, international competition played in largely in New York, the Polo Grounds for sure, but a little bit of Randall's Island, uh, Montreal, a couple of other cities were part of the mix uh, over those years. And that was the prelude, as we've discussed in in previous episodes, to the the founding of what ultimately became the North American Soccer League in earnest in 1968. But two rival leagues in the year prior to that, 1967, that, be the United, that being the United Soccer Association and the National Professional Soccer League. And and without uh, the Bill Cox-led International Soccer League importing whole cloth, uh, major top-tier soccer franchises from all around the world, Everton was part of that mix in the 1961 competition. They almost won the whole darn thing, but it was absolutely uh, part of the mix. And that sort of, uh, began the seeds of, of what became the NASL. And then, frankly, not coming back into the, uh, the United States and Canada until... 1985. And interestingly, an interesting time, having been here at the sort of foundational roots of what became the NASL, uh, coming back to the United States and, and, and Canada, actually Canada, North America, let's call it North America in Canada, of course, when the league NASL had just literally died uh, at the tail end of 1984. Uh, Everton came back in 1985. And then, uh, so interesting bookmark, but in between uh, you could make a very strong argument that Everton was probably one of the, if not the, uh, most prolific teams in in terms of providing talent for players in the North American Soccer League. And that clip that you heard at the beginning of this uh, little show here uh, was um, a testament to one of those players, Alan Ball, well-regarded and uh, one of the sort of uh, legendary players in Everton history, uh, made his mark for sure. Uh, in the NASL with the, um, <laughs> I guess you could say now, long lamented uh, or, per, or perhaps oft forgotten, uh, maybe both of those things, Philadelphia Fury uh, in 1978, uh, an interesting expansion franchise that uh, we need to go deeper into at some point. Peter Frampton and Paul Simon uh, and others uh, in the uh, the rock and roll pantheon. Uh, decided, hey, let's get into this NASL franchise ownership thing and we'll plop this team down in, in Philadelphia and, and we'll import all of our favorite players from 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 England. Uh, what was it called? The Premier League at the top time, but the, the Division One, uh, including our pal Alan Ball, who was a great player at Everton. Why not? Uh, it wasn't sort of all that easy and 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 uh, uh, full of uh, of excitement. Uh, the, certainly the crowds... Uh, didn't come uh, in great numbers. And, and there's a whole other sort of uh, a context to that story. We'll get to hopefully at some point in the uh, in the months ahead. But Alan Ball certainly was making a name for himself, not only with Philadelphia, but then got traded for uh, by the Vancouver Whitecaps. And why is he important? Well, 
Uh, the Vancouver Whitecaps, of course, won it all in 1979 uh, against, uh, well, in the semifinals against the vaunted Cosmos. There is a, uh, and then, of course, winning uh, the Soccer Bowl in 1979 at Giant Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey, was supposed to be the Cosmos in there. Of course, it was not. Uh, they beat the Tampa Bay Rowdies. Uh, and um, not only was yours truly there, but the game before that, the week before, uh, which is on some people's lists as the or one of the most exciting games. And I would put games in quotes only because it was, I don't know what it was. It wasn't just one game. It was a whole bunch of things. May, excuse me, May, September 1st, 1979, live uh, for three plus hours, three hours and 20 minutes on ABC Sports. That was the first year of uh, ABC Sports's Coverage of the NASL. Uh, we all know how that wound up and turned out uh, eventually. But this game was not the problem. Uh, it was jam-packed full of excitement. The Cosmos had lost to the Vancouver Whitecaps 2 to nothing or 2-0 uh, the Wednesday before this game. And uh, as you may remember, the NASL's uh, crazy playoff system, uh, it was basically the best two out of three, but it wasn't fully that. It was not aggregate goals. Uh, so literally, it was just one loss. Uh, for the Cosmos or one win for the Whitecaps going into the second uh, and frankly, possibly third game. The second game was won by the Cosmos in a shootout. So that means that they were tied on games, one game to one game. And so they had to move on to this thing called the mini game, 30 minutes of extra fun that literally had the weight or carried the weight of, as a tiebreaker as its own sort of full game, but not not really a full game, just 30 minutes. That game was tied and then also went into a shootout. It was crazy. Uh, it was nuts. Uh, the Cosmos lost that shootout. And obviously the Vancouver Whitecaps went on to win that game and then the series by by default or not by default, by uh, by definition, and then went up to uh, uh, came back and, and beat the uh, Tampa Bay Rowdies for the NASL championship that year. Alan Ball, very instrumental in that. And as you heard in that clip there, that was from uh, a little documentary that the current Vancouver Whitecaps uh, did back in uh, 2019 to commemorate the 40th anniversary of that NASL championship in Vancouver and the beginnings of really that Vancouver Whitecaps name and franchise. Alan Ball, one of the, if not the uh, main cogs uh, in that championship season. And uh, they knew he was a star. They knew uh, of his prowess at Everton and they wanted him for the Whitecaps. And lo and behold, it helped them win that uh, vaunted uh, NASL title for the not-so-tiny hamlet of Vancouver, uh, British Columbia. But that's an example of the contributions that Everton uh, from the today's Premier League has made uh, as an impact on the uh, sport of uh, soccer here in North America. And that's our conversation. We're going to get into uh, the International Soccer League. Uh, we're going to get into uh, a team in 1985 that was uh, that basically took on the uh, that was the remnants of what was the Toronto Blizzard when Everton came back to uh, to tour in 1985 called NX uh, Canada. If you remember that for one year back by Molson Brewery, there's a little uh, corner of forgottenness that we get into and everything in between, which was largely the North American Soccer League and Everton's contribution to that. All that and more for a fascinating chat. Uh, with our guests this week, David France and Rob Sawyer, their book, again, called Toffee Soccer, uh, the uh, history. What's it called? The history? 
It is the what I'm trying to get the full name here. Everton and North America. It, it's a fat. It the book is great. It's great. It's great. It's great. Even if you're not an Everton fan, um, it is meticulous in its detail. Every single stinking game that Everton's uh, ever played in North America uh, is chronicled here, including the uh, 2009 uh, Major League Soccer All Star Game uh, in Sandy, Utah, at uh, Rio Tinto Stadium. Uh, which was a, a classic affair settled in a shootout. Um, every single player uh, that had a cup of coffee with both Everton and somewhere in the United States is uh, is chronicled here. It's it is a very very impressive body of work in all of its almost 560 pages. It's uh, it's just fascinating to read, even if you're not an Everton fan. If you're a fan of the history of the sport of soccer in the United States and Canada, you will enjoy it very much. Uh, all that and more coming up in a few moments. Uh, stay tuned. It's fun. It's interesting. And uh, you will hopefully be entertained. Uh, a brand new sponsor this week. Let's uh, kick that off, uh, shall we? Uh, our pal Kevin Schultz uh, has brought to us Extra Time Vintage. ExtraTimeVintage.com. Uh, promo code Good Seats for 15% off. All of your purchases, what is it, you ask? Well, Extra Time Vintage is all about the celebration of, wait for it, defunct soccer teams. Yes, you name them, they've just about got them. There's all kinds of great teams commemorated in T-shirt and other wear form. Uh, ASL, NASL, MISL, and, and lots of different things in between. If you're a fan of any of the, the USA, the MPSL, all kinds of teams and leagues represented there. And uh, indeed, it's Extra Time Vintage. ExtraTimeVintage.com. You want that Hartford Hellions shirt, the Cleveland Cobras hoodie? How about the sweatshirt with the Philadelphia, not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania Stoners? Jeez, Pennsylvania Stoners of the ASL. Great stuff. It's all there for you. And uh, uh, it is uh, there with a, a great discount for you there. The code is Good Seats at Extra Time Vintage. Dot com promo code good seats to uh, get your uh, major discount and uh, you'll see this there's, there's a, a map of the United States where all these uh, great teams might have been domiciled in, in uh, Canada uh, I see Denver Dynamos uh, from the NASL hoodies I see Washington Whips sweatshirts I see a team Hawaii shirt uh, I see an uh, Atlanta Apollos uh, shirt I see all kinds of great stuff it just goes on and on and on. And why not enjoy some discounted goodness while you're there too? Again, extratimevintage.com, our brand new sponsor this week, promo code GOODSEATS for 15% off all of your purchases. Thank you to Kevin Schultz and his pals there at extratimevintage.com and for stepping up to the plate and being a new sponsor here on this little show. All right, let's get on to the festivities, shall we? Let's talk about the very interesting connection between Everton soccer in the Premier League and the history the modern history of the game of soccer in North America. Let's talk toffee soccer. Here's our conversation with Rob Sawyer and David France. We had just a couple of weeks back. Please enjoy. Why don't we start there, guys? Why don't we kind of, uh, uh, cause obviously this, this, this book is, is, uh, uh, amazingly comprehensive. And, uh, I mean, uh, it's, and frankly, it's a topic that that uh, encroaches on our little sort of odd 
uh, area of focus, which is sort of teams and leagues and, and situations, et cetera, that have existed in, in the pro sports realm generally here in the United States, North America, that for whatever reasons don't exist anymore. And it's just a nice confluence. But I, I think for the uh, maybe perhaps uninitiated American audience, although we, we've got a very worldwide reach, I, I'm astounded at, at the various places in Africa and Asia and in Europe that uh, we're listened to. So who knows why? Uh, but I, I certainly am not. Uh, I'm certainly happy for it. Um, maybe you can kind of uh, both of you in your own way, sort of uh, for the uninitiated, uh, kind of sort of set up this Everton club in in sort of the pantheon of let's call it British soccer or European, whatever, wherever sort of environment you want to describe it, because the leagues obviously have names have changed and all that stuff. Um, because I'm not sure uh, the maybe, shall we say, average soccer fan, right? They know the Manchester United's, they know the Chelsea's for lots of different reasons, the branding and all that stuff, but they may or may not be sort of as familiar with Everton uh, and it's very rich history, maybe a little, 101 for for our audiences to sort of its history and maybe how we've how they've gotten to where they are right now in the Premier League solidly. Can I take this one? Go ahead. Uh, Everton were one of the founder members of the Football League back in 1888, one of the 12 founding members. Um, since that time or shortly after that time, they were responsible for many of the innovations in football, such as goal nets such as a purpose-built football stadium. They were the first to do that. They were first to publish a program, a football program. And therefore, they have been, as I said, one of the pillars of, of English soccer. Uh, they've won nine ch- uh, first division championships. But more important than that, they have played 118 get- seasons in the top flight. Now, that number in itself doesn't mean much, but it's 22 more seasons than Manchester United, 26 more than City, 32 more than Tottenham and Chelsea. So this is a club with an illustrious history. As for its players, it had Dixie Dean, who was the Babe Ruth of soccer in the 30s. You know, his record of 60 goals in one season, one league season, has yet to be broken. So a real durability, right? So uh, maybe not sort of, you know, uh, dozens and dozens of, of championships and all that, certainly having success along the way. But but that durability, which is, I think, lost on certainly the North American uh, fandom, right? Because uh, this whole pro, uh, promotion relegation thing, right? There is a, a fight literally every year to not only succeed and, and win cups and championships, but also to stay in that top tier, even as that's morphed and modernized over time, right? So... You know, the fact that Everton is literally and figuratively essentially always been there, right, is itself a feat of durability and longstanding. It's a tremendous feat. When you talk about uh, titles, cups, silverware, uh, you must remember that Everton had some dreadful luck in in their history in that they've never had a dynasty. Most successful sports teams have a dynasty of a, of a decade or so. You can look at Arsenal, Liverpool, Manchester United. They've had them in recent years. When Everton had their best teams, something happened in the world, such as in 1914-15, the First World War broke out. In 1938-39, the Second World War broke out. And in 1985, of course, we were banned from Europe for no fault of our own. 
and that set us back significantly. Rob, how do, how, how do you sort of describe the team of late in, in sort of the modern day game, right? Because they're obviously still competitive and, and we're going to obviously get into some interesting overlaps in the United States and stuff because it's, it's, it's pretty clear, right? But given that durability, given that solid uh, performance, that uh, uh, longstanding um, uh, track record, right? It's going to, as we get into it in a few minutes, it's going to seem obvious that an Everton's going to be part of the, shall we say, American domestication of the game, although that's a, a loaded term, right? But when tours come and and the United States uh, becomes more aware and open and interested in the game, right? It only stands to reason that an Everton would be one of the first calls for the teams uh, to come to the States to showcase the game and or sprinkle some seeds that, you know, as, as time went on, would grow into th- some stuff here. Yeah, sure. I mean, Everton, as, as David has touched on, we're still, I think, counted amongst the aristocracy of um, football here in the United Kingdom. Um, the misfortune is that since 1995, we haven't actually put our hands on any silverware. Um, and probably for a period, we were, we were considered sort of pluck, a plucky Everton, uh, punching above our weight through much of the 2000s um, on a relative shoestring budget. And I do stress relative. Uh, compared to some other teams and, and doing better than maybe our players would you suggest that we would do. Um, in the past five years, we've actually come into a relatively large amount of money through our new benefactor, uh, Mr. Mashiri. Unfortunately, that hasn't been matched with the actual delivery on the pitch. So um, it's probably fair to say that at the moment we're, we're punching below our weight. Uh, these past few years, we've gone through several managers, periods of instability, but we now do have a, a world-class manager, a world-renowned manager in Carlo Ancelotti. But we're still sort of trying to pick up the pieces from probably five years of mismanagement in terms of the purchases we've made. And we're trying to live with that and reshape the team. So I think, as David said, we're, we're sort of hovering around the seventh, eighth position. Might creep into the sort of second tier European competition next year. Uh, but we've still got some way to go to get anywhere near sort of challenging those, those teams at the very top. But but it's also interesting, and this is sort of let's uh, let's skate into sort of the uh, the overlap here for our, our mutual interests, right? Because um, if you could pick one British slash uh, UK domicile team, however the political and geographical demarcations have waxed and waned over the decades and, and centuries, right? Um, in terms of its uh, perhaps maybe uh, unheralded influence of the game here in the United States, which is very complex for sure. Uh, but as we're going to highlight in a few minutes, you know, Everton has been, and frankly, probably the seeds of this book, right? Which I think to the uninitiated would be kind of like a revelation, which frankly, me as a soccer fan of the United States variety, which is rare and uh, 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 masochistic, I guess the question really is, um, how has Everton uh, become such an influential uh, part of the uh, North American game? Because I think, you know, once you scratch the surface, there are a lot of folks, you know, like today, like the Tim Howards and the Landon Donovans and the, the John Sp- the Wayne Rooney's, the John Spencer's. I mean, th- these are names that, you know, have made uh, quite uh, uh, some significant uh, contributions to the game in the United States. But when you look back, as we will in a moment, uh, I, I'm just flabbergasted, frankly, by just how how essential, if you will, the Everton team has been to making various goes, and some of them today, 
of the of the game on a professional level, the United States actually succeed. If I can answer that one, Tim. Well, as you as you may know, we've uh, toured North America on ten occasions. We've played thirty five games there in the post war era. Um, we have invited. Um, we've had two North American teams play at Everton at Everton. One was the uh, Columbus Crew behind closed doors, and another one was the Canadians, which was a touring team in, oh, I think it was 1891. Um, we have um, our players, our former players, have represented something like 150 American sides, and they've coached uh, 60 American sides. So there's been a tremendous influence of ev- old Everton players coming to the United States. Uh, I think 10 of them are in the different uh, halls of fame. And of course, we, and the other way, um, the, the contribution that North America has made to Everton has been some of the great players that we've we've had, uh, and it, I, we we always pick the, the you know the, the the two faces of American soccer, which is Landon Donovan, who I think we all regard in in in, in at Everton as being you know the greatest U.S. born player, and then the the face of America, which of course is Tim Howard, who I think we regard as a national hero. Well, I mean, uh, I I think it's also interesting that you're bringing the sort of two-way nature of this up, right? I would argue only until fairly recently, right? The uh, the the dynamic has been much more one way. That is the importation of what Everton and its system and its players and its coaches could and did bring to the United States and North America generally. Uh, but what you're referencing is, and maybe this is also a byproduct of some of those early, uh, shall we say, exploits here, uh, is the maturation of the game still a long way to go, fair disclosure, right, um, of the of the game in the United States and the products that are sort of coming out of this country, finally, long overdue, I would argue, um, and and making a mark. Uh, in the European game, right? I mean, we, we've seen it with uh, Christian uh, Pulisic. We've seen it with, you know, just a myriad of players, right? Tim Howard, uh, uh, you know, obviously got his start in the pro ranks with with MLS here in the United States, but truly made his his game a, literally world class by going overseas, playing with Everton, uh, and then helping the United States to at least, you know, hang tight, if you will, uh, on sort of the more international stage, right? So. This has become much more of a two-way kind of street now, I would imagine. Yes, we've had 15 uh, Canadian uh, USA uh, players uh, involved at Everton. Uh, Some of them have come for trials, um, like... uh, uh, Greg Bernhauser, uh, and he, he was not successful. Others like Bruce Wilson, you know, the famous Canadian player, he came and he was offered a contract, but he decided to return to Canada. And then if you think about yeah, Brian McBride and Precky and Joe Maxmore, um, and I'm sure there are others that, that I'm, I'm has escaped me. Uh, there's been a tremendous uh, contribution made by American players if they're good enough uh, at Everton. Yeah, and, and all those players that you just mentioned, right, standouts in the early days of MLS here in the United States, right, which is, you know, 25 years, quote unquote, strong. Um, but uh, it's those are foundational players that 
literally gave the uh, the the basis for you know upon which uh, today's league is still growing and thriving. Yeah, we do, we currently have a, a young goalkeeper who I guess is third or fourth choice, um, on, uh, Nick Hansen, who's uh, is from Florida. And he, he came to Everton at 16. There seems to be now that uh, American players are skipping the, uh, the college route and, uh, you know, they're going at 17, 18, joining European clubs, um, normally outside of the UK. Uh, I think Hansen's the only one that we've taken so far. Yeah. And Rob, again, this is uh, as well in this. Uh, this is also a two way street on that front, too, right? Because Everton is, uh, I believe, making more of a brand expansion, shall we say, uh, in the U.S. We've seen plenty of uh, British clubs, uh, 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 European clubs uh, making inroads here in the United States, say, at the youth level, the um, the club level, uh, the uh, expansion of, say, a Man City into, shall we call them franchises in other leagues like in Australia and the New York City uh, FC franchise and MLS. Um, I got to think that Everton's uh, going a little deeper or will consider to do so uh, in reverse, shall we say, here to the States. Yeah, maybe maybe some would argue slightly belatedly. We are, we are making a concerted effort as a club, I think, to have a, a greater presence in the USA. Uh, I'm sure if it hadn't been for COVID, we'd have been touring again last summer uh, over in the States. And we've had the announcements recently of us looking to set up a U.S. office, uh, making an appointment uh, for somebody to actually promote the the club um, and some affiliations, I think, with more with youth soccer. Um, looking beyond the North America, we've had tie-ups with clubs in Ireland and um, Chile. So you would like to think that there is moves afoot to maybe have a, a tie-in with a, with a club in, in North America in, in, the, in the coming years. Um, I think the club's also trying to reach out to supporters. There was a, a successful event that David actually made a, an appearance on online a couple of weeks ago, uh, an Everton in the USA event, which brought together supporters clubs from across North America, uh, hosted from the UK by by the club. So clearly, maybe some would argue belatedly, the club has realised that North America, in particular the USA, is a is a market to tap into, and the, the ties you know, can be strengthened. So it will be interesting to see how that develops in the next 12 to 24 months. Yeah. And look, you could also, uh, you, there's a genuineness there. There's a heritage, right? As we're going to get into in uh, sort of a, one of the zones of, of that, right? There's an authenticity of the Everton brand uh, as it becomes more known here in the States, because as this book uh, exhaustively gets into, uh, there are so many threads of Everton's influence in this game in the United States, uh, not just as a team that tours, right, which is relatively easy and almost cynical to do, right, but but beyond that in terms of the players and the uh, influences and the continued contributions of of that uh, of the that play and uh, of that brand that may or may not be known by by people outside uh, outside the game. So I I think in some respects you you have almost a built-in advantage as that brand gets more nourished here, shall we say, uh, in that you can go literally decade by decade, uh, all the way back into the earliest of, of days when it was, a, a, you know, a, a professionally um, attempted in, the, in this country, that Everton and its influence was part of it, 
Yeah, uh, I mean, David, I'm sure you want to come in, but I'd just say that you, you're absolutely right, Tim. Um, and, and I'm sure we'll come on to talking about some players, footballers who've come over to the States and maybe done a couple of seasons. But I think the research of this book has drawn out is just how many people with an, an Everton connection have actually made North America their home and have been great advocates for, for like their mother club for Everton um, over the decades, going all the way back to you know, the early times of the sort of 20th century, um, a great player like Sam Chedsoy, who settled in, in Canada and, and was entered into their Hall of Fame there. So it's not just the players who've come over a couple of years, but there's a whole number of people that we've come across through the book research and spoken to who have made the States their home, but have always been there to, to blow the trumpet for for Everton. Uh, David, I don't know if you've got anything you'd like to add on that. Uh, well, if I can go back to um, talking about the market, uh, Everton in the U.S. market, um, I can only – there's so much competition, uh, again, not just against the Premier League clubs, but the European giants such as Real Madrid and Barcelona, that realistically Everton can only be a niche club. Uh, you know, when, when we asked, when we surveyed the current Everton fans, US-based Everton fans, why they selected Everton, because Rob and myself and Darren, who is the other co-author of the book, you know, we were born Evertonians, uh, but, you know, the, next, the new generation have actually picked the club. The reasons why they picked the club is because they're not Liverpool and they're not Manchester United and they're not Chelsea. Uh, and the second reason is because of the rich history of the club, because we, we know that North Americans love history, but more important, the third one is is the values of the club. Um, you know, Everton do a tremendous amount to work in the local community, and uh, and I think is is admired throughout the the British game for for uh, its work in the community. Well, let, let's talk about some of that history because the one area that I kind of lasered in on, and uh, I think is a nice sort of scene set uh, for the. Uh, uh, you know, the sort of framing of, of, of the rest of this conversation is this uh, interesting sort of, um, I, I guess, a primordial is, is what I would call it here in the United States, although that's that's not really true because there have had been a number of different professional soccer leagues uh, attempted with various levels of success uh, over the years prior to this point. But I think most uh, modern fans of the game here in the States would sort of recognize that the uh, dawn of the what ultimately became the North American Soccer League in the late 1960s was really sort of the uh, the, the birth, if you will, of the modern era. But the primordialness of that, uh, the antecedent of that, the sort of tributary to that, one of the big tributaries was this thing called the International Soccer League. Now, we've, we've discussed it uh, on a number of different episodes, and, and it was a sort of a fascinating sort of um, uh, attempt to kind of uh, bring professional top tier soccer to the United States. But, you know, as as still exists today, uh, really born off the back of a I wouldn't I guess you could call it a a an exhibition competition of sorts. But in many respects, it also had very competitive elements. Um, maybe you can kind of give us a sense of Everton circa 1960, 61, when uh, they were uh, selected or maybe they uh, sought uh, inclusion in this uh, thing called the International Soccer League in 1961. Um, you've got some great discussion around like sort of what was happening, but I'm not sure 
based on your writings and but based on what we know that 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 the team, the club, the organization kind of exactly knew what they were getting into by being included in this summertime tournament in the United States. Uh, let me tell you about our involvement in this. I, I, I gather that Bill Cox, who was the owner of the Philadelphia Phillies, it, it was his brainchild. Correct. And and he brought teams over from Europe, Canada, um, South America, Mexico. Uh, it started in 1960 and it lasted for about five years and it, it collapsed. And of course, it led eventually to the formation of the NASL. It was structured in two sections. Each year it was structured in two sections. There were eight teams in each section. They played the first section in May. And then uh, after that, it was in series. The, uh, the second section played and then they came back in August and had a final between the two uh, champion uh, teams. Uh, it was financially rewarding. It was a success financially. Everton were guaranteed two and a half thousand pounds per game, which was quite a lot of money back then. Uh, but as you said, the new manager, Everton had just changed manager and they brought in Harry Catterick, who was a very successful manager. And uh, Rob uh, wrote his biography, which is another fascinating book. Um, Harry Catterick wasn't keen on this at all. Um, he, he'd only had the job for a month or so. And the thought of uh, an extra five weeks competition lasted for five weeks at the end of a, a grueling season uh, wasn't what he was looking forward to. Anyway, the, the, the contract had been signed and uh, Everton went with just 17 players. They had one goalkeeper, they didn't have a reserve goalkeeper and uh, they actually only had 15 players because they took two of them who were injured. And the uh, on, it, it was the badly... From Everton's standpoint, it was a poorly organised competition. Uh, the first example was even on the morning of the first game, the first game was in Montreal against Montreal Concordia. The Everton chairman, Mr. John Moores, he had to call the head of FIFA to get permission to play the game because um, the International Soccer League was not recognised by FIFA. And if you played in an un uh, authorized uh, competition therefore you couldn't play in UFA, uh, sorry in FIFA organized competitions and he, he only got that granted at the last minute uh, I'll quickly go through and give you some taste of what the games were like uh, you, you mentioned uh, that there were exhibition games I think in fact they were far from exhibition games when Everton toured in 1956 they, they played um the all-star teams in the United States and they played Aberdeen, the Scottish club, in um, a series of games in Canada. They were exhibition games. They were, you know, at, at the, the scores were 6-0, 8-0, something like that. These were very competitive games. The first game in Montreal was at the Molson Stadium and I, I think the best way to describe it would be ugly. It seemed that the Canadian players had previously played hockey and uh, weren't so adapted playing soccer um, Everton were used to rough play it's not like the Premier League of today when everybody falls over um, and uh, or, or feigns injury Everton were used to, 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 uh, to matching uh, people's physical 
uh, physical nature, but the game was full of melees. Two players were sent off and one was carried off with a broken leg, which shows you what kind of competition it was. A few days later, they played Kilmarnock at the set is again in Montreal, and that was just a routine win for Everton. And then they had to endure an 11-hour train journey from Montreal to New York, and they they were booked into what can best be described as a DOS house. I don't know how you would describe, how you would describe, but maybe a flop house would be the American term for it, but it was certainly an unsuitable accommodation for professional athletes. I won't name the mention, the, the, the name of the hotel is mentioned in the book, but I don't think it's fair for me to mention it here. Anyway, the, the place was filthy. It was dirty and it was certainly unacceptable. So they moved to the Paramount Hotel hotel in Broadway, which unfortunately was two miles away from Central Park, uh, where they were training. So they had to get the subway in their kit. So you can imagine there's 17 professional soccer players in the kit getting on the subway in in, in, uh, in Manhattan uh, to travel the two miles to Central Park. Um, after a while, of course, they realized that, you know, they were embarrassed by this, so they decided to take taxis. Um, the training facilities were poor. They had to play on a, a baseball field and, um, and, and they couldn't play on a Saturday because the New York regulations, uh, because it was a public park, uh, forbid professional teams playing there on a Saturday. And um, the, the players themselves ha- had a lot of free time because most of the fixtures in America were concentrated in a, uh, a two-week window. Uh, they played something like four or five games in a two-week window, whereas, you know, they were there for five weeks, so they had a lot of free time. I think that they all enjoyed themselves. When they actually started playing, they had easy games against Karlsruhe from Germany, uh, comfortable wins. They had uh, another very competitive game against uh, Dynamo uh, Bucharest, where two players were sent off. Then they played Bangu, which was from Rio de Janeiro. They were, um, they played, Everton had played them the year before at Goodison Park, which is Everton's home. And that had been a, a fiercely competitive game. Uh, Everton were frustrated by the, uh, let's call it the shenanigans of the Brazilian players, the diving and the sly fouls. And I gather that the, the the game that they played at the Polo Grounds in New York was was very similar. It was a bad tempered game. Everton then played Besiktas, um, and uh, well, that was a walkover. And the final game was against an American team called the Americans of New York, which was a seven nil victory for Everton, and that was in Montreal. They then played. Everton came top of their section, and they had to return in the August. And they had to play, uh, they were required to play against Dukla Prague. Uh, Dukla Prague were um, essentially the Czechoslovakian army team and the core of the Czechoslovakian uh, national side. And one year later, the Czechoslovakian national side lost the World Cup final to Brazil. So they were not, they were, you know, they were a good team. They demonstrated that by hammering Everton by seven goals to two in the first leg and in the second leg they won 2-0 um, the board, uh, when Everton got back uh, the, the chairman was somewhat distraught because he was still under the 
the impression that British soccer ruled the world. It was a bit of out of touch with actually what was going on. Uh, the, the report that they made to the board of directors of Everton uh, wasn't very flattering. They said that the tour wasn't a very happy one. It was badly organised. There was poor accommodations, a lack of training facilities, and all the games were squeezed into one part. They did mention, of course, that they made £5,000 which sort of smoothed things over a little bit. Uh, the impact of the tour was that Everton started the new season badly and it was blamed on the tour. They finished fourth when really they should have won it. Uh, the following year, they did win it. And maybe an indication of how they felt about the tour is they never went back to North America for 24 years. Yeah, that, that's it's all fascinating stuff. And, and uh, I highly commend the book because uh, in there you've got uh, various uh, covers uh, from the game programs and literally game by game, sort of blow by blow. Uh, some of those games are uh, very ex- exceedingly interesting. A couple of things to unpack there. So, yeah, number one, the, the quote unquote New York Americans, right? That's uh, arguably the sort of token United States offering, I guess, in this international soccer league when, in essence, they're really, I mean, there was a very regional and very ethnically centric or or focused quote unquote American soccer league, right? So I, I would imagine that that team, if I'm not mistaken in my history, it was uh, more of a, uh, an assemblage of, of a, I guess you would call it an all-star or just uh, assembled team specifically for this competition. So uh, there is that. I, you also uh, uh, glanced over the other facility uh, that was, uh, so you mentioned a couple of games in, in Montreal, but also the, a lot of the games for the, the entirety of these five years of this tournament uh, were centrally uh, located in uh, a fast aging polo grounds. Um, uh, maybe some uh, some thoughts about that because clearly this was also being played in the, in the the height of the summer, which I'm sure the the lads were not sort of tremendously used to. Uh, and New York summers can be very brutal, and it looks like more than a few of those games were uh, quite intense in terms of heat and humidity, and and not made better by a, a less than shall we say modern facility in the polo grounds. Well, the um, the game against Bangu that I mentioned, that was played in uh, heat and humidity of 94 degrees, which, of course, you know, the, the, the English and Scottish players were not used to. As for the polo grounds, of course, it was a massive stadium, but they only had something like eight to 10,000 spectators there. Uh, so I think the turnout was pretty poor. When it came to the finals, uh, which were played at the polo grounds, I think that there was more interest in the finals. There were, I think, maybe twelve to 20,000 fans showed up. Uh, that compares with when the, the, I mentioned earlier the 1956 exhibition tour. Uh, at that time, they only got a couple of thousand fans, maybe 2,000 if, if they were lucky. Well, the money didn't hurt, right? I guess, but obviously the experience uh, certainly uh, scared them away. I guess from coming back. Um, I, but I, I, you know, so it's important to understand that this international soccer league was, uh, in essence, sort of a, a showcase with some competition, right? And I, so this was on; these were on local uh, television in 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 New York, in particular. Uh, we, it sort of remains sort of a, you know, a, a lost, uh, uh, treasure that, uh, we'd love to be able to scare up, uh, a, a video of that if it's ever, uh, found in somebody's garage or, or, or attic or basement. Um, but, uh, you know, I, this was, uh, it did have sort of flashes of success, uh, and it did introduce in, 
top tier fashion, some of the best players and some of the best teams uh, around the world. But it also became sort of the the kindling, I guess, for this thing called the North American Soccer League. Um, as you guys well know, and our audience increasingly does, uh, that in and of itself was an interesting uh, sort of creation because in 1967, uh, there were not one, but two leagues. Actually, there were three, but they consolidated into two. Uh, that became essentially the beginnings of what then in 1968 became a, a combined North American soccer league. But a primary part of one of those uh, leagues, the United Soccer Association, was this, shall we call it, full importation of club teams from around of around the globe, similar to the ISL's uh, setup, but uh, with the, uh, shall we say, odd uh, 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 translation into their domestic team city hosts, right? So you mentioned Bangu, and there's a bunch of other teams that were in the ISL that literally uh, took on Los Angeles, for example, the Wolves, Wolverhampton, became the Wolves of Los Angeles, right? So uh, this sort of weird uh, uh, translation of a full-fledged international team, lock, stock, and barrel, becoming uh, uh, named as a uh, a local uh, affiliation of, of a city in the United States. I'm curious uh, as to why Everton – and maybe I think I know the answer, why they weren't either invited or uh, thought of to be part of this United Soccer Association, one of the two tributaries into the NASL, coming over to the United States and playing really a competitive thing to help uh, create uh, soccer in the United States. I'm guessing it was because of the trauma, I guess, of 1961. Yeah, I I think, um, as David alluded to, the I think the experience in 1961 certainly uh, meant that Harry Catrick, who was still Everton manager uh, into the 1970s, uh, he would have had no appetite for uh, basically sacrificing a summer break and pre-season to to go back um, to take Everton to the States uh, under a different brand for for another occasion. Um, The clubs that did tend to do that from the UK, um, Stoke City, for example, who became the Cleveland Stokers, interestingly featuring Roy Vernon who had been with Everton uh, in 1961 on the tour. Um, clubs like Stoke, they went away nearly every year uh, in, in the post-season to uh, basically to raise some cash. So Everton were known as the Mersey Millionaires in, in this particular period of their history. They were effectively bankrolled by John Moores, the chairman and the Littlewoods organisation. So there was no financial imperative for Everton to do this. So they didn't need the money, and in, I'm sure, according to the manager, they didn't need the hassle. So I don't think there was any chance of Everton crossing the Atlantic in 1967. That didn't stop players, though, from uh, – well, I, I'm guessing because it was so scantily uh, referenced in, in this book, um, I'm guessing that uh, uh, really nobody from Everton uh, decided to jump into the competing league, which was the rogue – non-FIFA-sanctioned National Professional Soccer League in 1967. But when 1968 came, which was sort of this amalgamation of these two entities, uh, and interestingly, for the first couple of years of the NASL, it even still borrowed this sort of whole importation thing uh, still of pro teams from around the world and sort of, uh, uh, you know, crowbarring them into domestic uh, uh, locations in the United States. 
Um, Everton, like a lot of other clubs, certainly and a lot of players, uh, started over time to see that this North American Soccer League could be an option for them, either as an alternative to playing in Europe or perhaps as a supplement to playing into Europe. Uh, and no lack of players with Everton chops and background that ultimately came to this North American Soccer League circa 68 and onward. Yeah, uh, well, I think going as far back as I think 1968, that's probably the first sort of former Evertonian, a chap called Ray Veal, went to the LA Wolves for a season. Um, I think it was really into the 70s when you began to get the slightly higher profile, more high profile Everton footballers, and probably the mid 70s by the time you got players going directly from Everton to uh, play over in the United States. Um, and, uh, and a good number of those we've managed to speak to as part of the research. Um, I'm sure it became more attractive, especially once the whole thing with Pelle, etc. came onto the scene. And I think there was a sort of a bit of a boys network developed. So there were English or British players over there or getting involved in the sort of management of teams. And then they were inviting their mates over. So it became very much a thing. From the especially from the mid seventies onwards, um, a lot of Everton players did make that journey. Yeah, some great stories in here too, and this book is 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 a treasure trove of them. I you, there these are names of the NASL who are uh, well regarded and well remembered. For example, Jimmy Gabriel, right? Obviously, uh, if if you could pick somebody who was synonymous with soccer with the Sounders in their original version in North American Soccer League, some uh, great memories there. But I mean, you also get into people like Jimmy Husband and his memories of this. Memphis Rogues team, right? And I talk about a, a an attempt to bring soccer to to the masses, right? Memphis, Tennessee, not necessarily even today, frankly, sort of a, a what I would call a soccer hotbed, right? Um, but also things like just the craziness of the NASL. We've talked about that on many different occasions with lots of folks, right? I mean, you know, I, wet T-shirt contests and all kinds of wacky promotions, and 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 frankly, changing the rules, right, to to make it appealing to the you know, American fan. Some of those actually ideas uh, could still, you know, make their way back into modern the modern day game, right? So the a points system, for example, that rewards uh, scoring more goals, even if you're losing, uh, that's not a bad thing. A 35 yard line as an offsides, right? Uh, much more controversial. Uh, shootouts, right? To eliminate ties. Um, I I just wonder uh, if you sort of maybe collectively um, think about some of these commentaries and stuff. I. I, I, the way I read some of these memories in this book, as well as just generally in the conversations we've had with folks over the years who who were part of this mixture, it was sort of kind of a, a maybe a mix of wonderment and um, uh, just intrigue that it, it was kind of fun and different and and you know not sort of the I guess at the time in the seventies in particular the British game you know kind of dour and 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 not sort of fun per se uh the 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 united states was kind of the antithesis of that uh even though the you know the future was not necessarily guaranteed here in in this country absolutely i don't think i've spoken to a single uh former player when when doing the research for this book with david and darren who hasn't loved his time and you know that nobody has regretted going to play in, in north america whether it's for a season two seasons or longer um, and, the, you know, just the whether it's the climate, the lifestyle, the money, of course, helps, it, you know, relatively lucrative compared to perhaps playing in England. Um, there were downsides. The AstroTurf um, didn't uh, do too many knees a, a favour uh, and the travel was something they commented on. But but overall, 
all of them found it refreshing, uh, a great lifestyle, a great thing to learn, uh, and probably more relaxed, frankly, you know, the, compared to the um, that intense intense competitiveness that they would have had to face back in England. So um, players, I think all the ones I spoke to, and I'm sure David will chip in too, they have nothing but warm memories of their their, their time spent in the States. Uh, Terry Darricott, who was an Everton defender who went to Tulsa, and he you know, had some wonderful stories and ju- just things that were so alien to, to the sort of British player, the, you know, the singing of the national anthem or, or sort of leading stars of uh, Broadway coming and singing before or after games or uh, a guy who sort of goes, climbs into a coffin on the centre circle and has it exploded you know, before kickoff. This isn't the stuff you were getting at Goodison Park or Old Trafford. Uh, or not yet anyway, who knows? Um, so, yeah, it, it's amazing. And as you say, some of these things, you know, the, the razzmatazz, it has sort of eventually come in maybe more diluted form over to Europe. So in some, you know, a lot of ways, the NASL was ahead of its time. Can I just add to that, that uh, in the 70s, Britain was in a, a depression I moved to the United States in, in the 70s, and it was an exciting country. Everything was new and everything was bright and big. And when I've spoken to the, to the footballers, uh, they hadn't seen anything like it. They hadn't seen the technology. Uh, America was years, decades maybe ahead of uh, the United Kingdom at that time. Um, and it was, ex- it was an exciting place to come to. It was an adventure. When, when I talked to Alan Ball, the famous uh, World Cup winner in 1966, he had two spells in the United States. One was with the Philadelphia Fury, uh, where he thought that that was just like a vacation. You know, they, they, they just had a great time off the pitch, you know, the, all the adventures that they had in that neck of the woods. And the next team he played for was the Vancouver Whitecaps, and that was totally different. That was uh, very competitive. Um, they, I think they, they won the, uh, the the championship when, when he was there. But, the, you know, everybody, were, it was like playing in Britain. It was very, very intense. Well, yeah, and, and and the influx of British players, right, uh, was very pronounced. I, I and and Everton uh, certainly contributed to that. Um, I mean, you mentioned the Fury, for example. That that was a a team only lasted three years, um, but was very much modeled in, I guess, either the 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 English style or the English way uh, of play, uh, if not from a uh, process and um, coaching perspective uh certainly from a player perspective right and uh, that wasn't unique to philadelphia there were there was a ton of teams that i mean if there was any sort of uh reliable source of players for the north american soccer league was absolutely coming from the uk um and i wonder and maybe i think you get into this with some of the remembrances and stuff there was almost sort of a um call it a pipeline right of the unique nature of the NASL season, right, was that it was a late spring to relatively mid-summer, right? It was pretty truncated, uh, at least for the the golden years, I guess. It did elongate a little bit, but it, it somewhat neatly played well with uh, the league season in in uh, in England and in Europe generally, where it it, it provided a window of additional play, additional uh, paycheck. Um, I, I just wonder how that all sort of frankly worked because uh, at once that's 
mutually beneficial. But then again, you know, if I'm if I'm loaning a player, say from Everton, or I'm granting permission to my player to come to the states to play, right? It's also a risk, right? I, I agree. Uh, I think the players, the established players, thought it thought of it as like a pension. It was their last big payday, um, uh, and there was a similar group of people who were the younger players who may not have made it to the first team with Everton, who came over and they played in the NASL, and they and they stayed. They became Americans. They they went into coaching. So there were two types of uh, two groups of people who came over: the, the established stars, the you know the marquee signings, and the journeymen. Let's call them who uh, who are similarly have contributed a lot to the development of soccer in the states. Yeah, I'm picking up on on your question, Tim. I think relatively few Everton players were allowed to sort of go on a on a summer loan. Um, I know that did happen with players at some other English clubs, but generally with the Everton players or players with Everton connections, they they effectively left Everton to go and play um, in the states and would then return and play for another club in England. So I don't think I don't think it would be something that Everton would have encouraged just sort of releasing their players for three, four, five months. Uh, it, it tended to be when they were coming towards the end of their Everton career that, that their next move was to go to the States. Yeah, and, and, and maybe we can get to some of, these, some of the names that sort of stand out from your investigation, your history, your interviews and stuff. I mean, I, I, growing up watching, you know, being a Cosmos fan, uh, fair disclosure, you know, names like... Uh, like Alan Ball, right? A uh, pretty well-established Everton star. But, you know, he was uh, a, a part of the Philadelphia Fury story, both as a player and as a coach, right? So uh, somebody like a Peter Beardsley or, or even um, uh, like Dave Clements, right? He was he was a New York Cosmos coach uh, for some time. And interestingly, and, and probably most memorably, uh, part of uh, as a player and as a coach, for the perhaps most garishly outfitted team of all time, the Caribou of Colorado, right? Um, so I, I guess I'd love to get into some of the uh, some of the names that uh, might be more uh, known and or uh, uh, helpful to our audience, but also uh, maybe a little bit of an insight as to some of those folks who stayed and decided to kind of you know, root themselves in the United States and then ride with this game wherever it might go, and perhaps. Uh, uh, you know, bring the, the the beautiful game to the United States in a real substantial professional way. Oh, where do we start? Well, I'll, I'll start off with a couple, David, and then you can add some more. So you yeah, talked about it's Alan not Bob. a quiz, but I'm just curious, <laughs> throw some names out there. I mean, no, sure. I, so these are, yeah, there are stories with all of them. And, and again, get the book, friends, because it gets really detailed. It's fantastic. You talked about Alan Ball, who ended up at Vancouver. Well, you also had people like Roger Kenyon, Dave Thomas, um, two other uh, notable Everton players of the seventies ended up there with with Borley in in British Columbia. Uh, Jimmy Gabriel we touched on Gary Jones, who was a a mercurial winger um, at Everton in the mid seventies, never quite reached the heights he should have done. Well, he ended up at Fort Lauderdale, um, having the time of his life with uh, George Best and Gerd Muller. Um, David, is that you want to chip in with a few as well? No, I, I just oh, can, I, you can imagine you can imagine going to the bar with those guys. Uh, I, I think uh, the bar came to them. They had a great. That was the wet T-shirt competition, and and the ladies with with pom poms. Um, the uh, it seemed that Fort Lauderdale was a very popular place. Asa Hartford went there, as uh, Rob said. Gary Jones and uh, Brian Kidd, who is obviously still in the game, uh, went there. Uh, other names were 
Bruce Rioch, who went to Seattle. Um, Duncan McKenzie was in Tulsa. And, and as a, uh, the, Tulsa at that time was owned by Joe Maxmore's father. So um, there was a connection there. Uh, and one of my favorites is Steve Sargent. Steve Sargent went to Detroit and he's still there. Yeah, and we've talked to a lot of uh, former players, uh, and it's just interesting how, uh, for whatever reason, they would wind up staying. Um, but also, and we sort of alluded to this uh, before, to a person, they all you know fondly remember uh, these sort of experiences, right? And maybe the paychecks might, might bounce, and maybe you know they might be playing for one team one year and then another. Um, uh, but the the grassroots stuff right i we a lot of great memories of you know literally pitching in and and uh lining the fields and and going to to local teams and and organizations and and trying to sort of grow the game from a grassroots perspective it's almost like a in some respects almost like a new lease on life when you juxtapose that to where they came from in this again admittedly sort of bleak period of time in in the in the uh, uh the english and european game yeah you make a good point there tim about the a number of players said that in their contract they they were obliged if you want to do outreach so when they were playing for the north american teams part of their job was to go out to local schools community groups uh etc to do coaching and, and spread the word uh, even though it's a contractual obligation they all speak about it with, with great fondness and i suppose it was it led some of them down that coaching path and, and led to a couple of them like steve Sargent, actually uh staying there and, and getting involved with the game so Again, that's something now that we talk about Everton in the community and lots of other clubs doing this, trying to become more involved in their community. Well, that that kind of thing was happening in the mid seventies in the in the in the NASL. So again, that was something that really struck me as being as ahead of its time, and something that the players actually really bought into. Let me let me ask you, uh, and this is sort of a selfish question about um, uh, the the Cosmos, right? So I grew up as a fan of the, of the team. Uh, arguably uh, the, you know, major uh, global brand uh, that the ex that exported from the NASL. Uh, you could make the argument as many soccer historians have that they were sort of the, uh, I guess the sort of uh, uh, archetype for what became the sort of global super brand uh, kind of concept that we sort of see today with the Chelsea's and the Man U's of the, of the world. Um collectively, and there, there are a few folks like Dave Clements in the earlier days of the Cosmos experience, uh, people like Bruce Wilson, who were nominally related to Everton as a trialist um, and others. Uh, was there any sort of thread of uh, what their thoughts of this team were? Because I certainly remember back in the day, right, there was sort of the you either were a pro Cosmos person or against them. And frankly, this is sort of a a similar juxtaposition to this sort of ill-fated super league, right? Where, you know, it's, it's, uh, you've got the haves and the have nots and the cosmos for lots of different reasons were absolutely maybe the only real have of the NASL. Um, I'm just wondering if you got any sense of the players feeling about sort of this, if you will, super club in the NASL, if they felt that it was a good thing or a bad thing, or did they not care because they were just here having fun and enjoying themselves? Can I can I uh, answer that one? Please, as, as you well as you well know, Ken Furphy, who was a uh, player at Everton, he only played in the reserves. 
he played, uh, he managed the Cosmos uh, for, for a season. Uh, I talked to Clive Toy, who was the, um, I guess he was the chief executive of the Cosmos for, for several years. He, he takes credit for recruiting Pele and Franz Beckenbauer. Yes, a um, form, former guest on this show. Fantastic and, well, and well at it. Is a knowledge is it's a pleasure to talk to somebody like that, uh, and I'm glad that you've had him on the show and and that uh, you know his story has been told. Um, I gather from talking to Clive that the cosmos was great for the game, but it also destroyed the game. I'm talking the game, I mean the NASL by the cosmos bringing in the superstars, the Pele's and the the Beckenbauer's, uh, it resulted in other teams doing that and other teams couldn't afford to do it. So they brought in the big names, the Cruyffs and, and the Naskins and the likes of George Bess. Uh, but it really um, had significant financial impact on, on, on them in the long term. So I, I want to get into sort of why it took uh... – Everton so long to come back to the United States, not until 1985, which is it's interesting when you look back at it, because Everton had uh, obviously a role to play, if you will, in what ultimately became the beginnings of this North American Soccer League. And obviously within it as well, player by player, coach by coach. But interestingly, the team itself didn't come back until literally the NASL was sort of it wasn't even around in 85. It was kind of burning embers, if you will. Uh, but before I get to that sort of 1985 sort of part of it, um, there was this thing in the early 80s, uh, maybe late 70s, early 80s within the NASL called the Transatlantic Challenge Cup, uh, in which the Cosmos were always featured. Uh, and it was a round robin in season tournament of sort of international games. Uh, the Chicago Sting were part of it. The Seattle Sounders were part of it, et cetera. Uh, teams from all over. I think Man U was part of it. And uh, various teams sort of came over from, uh, I think it's mostly Europe, but also South America. Uh, in your investigations and your conversations, did you ever hear about this? Or was Everton even maybe even considered? Or, or is this something that's new to you? I've heard of it. Um it, um, I, I gather that the European teams only played a couple of games uh, in the season. It didn't play all of the participants in it. Um, when it came to Everton, I don't think they even considered it. They, at that time, they were traveling the world. They were going. They've always been great pioneers and trailblazers. In was it 1905? They went to Argentina. To, you know, to teach the Argentinians how to play the game. But they went to Australia, Mauritius, you know, South Africa, Asia. Uh, they went on tours everywhere. They just didn't, you know, they just didn't return to the United States. How then 85? Why come back, uh, especially when the NASL essentially had collapsed? Um, you really had like two teams, really, or embers of teams that were even willing to kind of come back after the uh, the collapse of, of 84, um, maybe you can set the tone for the 85 tour. What was that all about? Why were they coming back? And um, uh, just that maybe some of the scenarios around that. I mean, Bruce Wilson makes an appearance, right, with this, uh, this yeah. team that was no longer the Toronto Blizzard, for example. Rob, let me, if, if I may uh, respond to this one. Um, the reason why we took part, well, the reason why they had the competition was uh, the Canadian uh, Canadians 
national team uh, had qualified for the World Cup or was in the process of qualifying for their only time for the World Cup. And, of course, the players didn't have anywhere to play. They didn't play for, for regular teams. The NASL had uh, collapsed. So they decided that they would form two teams. One was NX, which was the Blizzard. Uh, and the other was the, the Canadian national team. They asked Everton to come over at the last minute. And the reason why Everton came over is because because of the behaviour of the fans from our neighbours at Heysel Stadium and the loss of 39 uh, Italian football fans meant that English teams were banned from Europe. And the only competitive opposition they had was in Canada. So Everton, uh, with Everton were then the league champions, the English league champions. They were delighted to come over and play. And actually, I, I went to both of those games. I lived in Houston at the time. And I, I remember those two games. And what I remember a lot about it was the number of Everton fans, the, the number of expats in Toronto uh, who'd showed up for those games. Uh, I think that we, we drew 1-1 with Inex and we beat the Canadian national side 1-0. Yeah, a, a lost treasure, certainly, that fits very well into the, our genre here is this Inex Canada thing, which I think most people don't recognize or remember that were was basically the uh, the ongoing embers of what was the Toronto Blizzard. I know the Cosmos attempted on their own, keeping their name to have a series of exhibitions in 1985 as well. And that didn't go very well for too long. Uh, but Toronto, obviously a very cosmopolitan town, always been a strong soccer town too, mostly from ethnic sort of origins and stuff. But it seems, uh, it, it seems ironic, right? That, that, uh, that they would come back Everton to, to play when there really wasn't much sort of left to kind of tour with. I, I would imagine they would have probably been asked by the Cosmos to be part of uh, their exhibition uh, exploits in 85 too. Uh, I, I find it hard to believe they wouldn't have been asked. It all happened at the last minute. I think it was about 10 days before the, um, uh, well, I mean, we, they didn't know that they were going to be banned from Europe. I, I think they, they'd already organized tours, um, uh, pre-season tours in, in Austria. And, uh, of course, they, they couldn't play in Europe. So uh, it, it was the only, I, I gather it was the only outlet for them. And they, as I said, it, everything was organized in 10 days. Well, let's uh, let's maybe sort of uh, uh, round the round the uh, third base here and sort of slide into home uh, sort of a, a capstone here. So, you know, I, we kind of love to sort of delve into and sort of roll around in sort of those things that were forgotten. But it's, it's this, there's no question that that Everton as a as a soccer franchise uh, has been uh, very much part of uh, the weave, the fabric, uh, the sewing, if you will, of the professional game uh, here in the United States. And it's also pretty clear that as the 2000s sort of rolled around and onward, and, and as we uh, argued early in the conversation, perhaps even more still to come, uh, the touring, uh, the brand, uh, it's certainly been um, uh, much more pronounced over the last decade or two. Uh, and I, I'm just curious as to sort of where you sort of see Everton going in the years ahead as it relates to uh, the American game. Clearly, there are folks who have made major contributions to the game here. Uh, and clearly, there's a, an appetite. And it continues to be a source of contention, right, about bringing 
teams from other lands here in the United States for, you know, the, the Euro snob crowd, shall we say, right? They, they, they don't look at MLS as being highly competitive and they get excited for things like the International Champions Cup and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, but of course, the, the the cynic would say, well, you know, it's in the middle of the off season for these clubs. Do they bring their biggest powerhouse lineups? Do they take these competitions seriously? Uh, is this a true uh, showing of the best of these teams? Or is this just, you know, a calendar thing where it's just, you know, at least something to satiate the fans and expose people to the brand, uh, even if it is, you know, in the in the midst of the off season for these clubs. So I guess the question in there is, wh- where do you see Everton and the American game now and in the years ahead? Uh, obviously, the players of the past, you know, who've made their contributions and continue to be ambassadors for the team and, and the game. But where where do you see it going? This relationship. Yeah, do you want me to answer that, Rob? Yep, certainly. Um, you've got to remember that uh, Everton uh, played in the MLS All-Star game not too long ago. And in the last, while David Moyes was manager, we came over here seven times. We toured on seven occasions. Uh, really well uh, organized, uh, tremendous support. I mean, we uh, I went to the games in Houston and there was something like two or 3,000 Everton fans had come over from the UK to to watch, uh, which is was a set. It was called the Texas Cup. There was essentially exhibition games, and uh, they made a lot of friends. When I look at what Everton is in the United States, I'd say it was the Leonard Cohen of football clubs. It's an acquired taste. It's it's a special <laughs> club. It's it's a special club, and where people are very proud to be Evertonians. You know, I have neighbours here in Arizona who support Manchester United and Manchester City. You know that they they just go with the wind. It, once you're an Evertonian, you're an Evertonian for life. I know that's the same with many many clubs, but with the traditions of of our club, uh, that's what makes us very special. We're very very loyal. We go through the ups and downs of it all. Rob, your thoughts. What do you think? I mean, uh, it, it seems like Everton is uh, uh, really trying to, uh, at some point, uh, relatively soon, to kind of take that next step, that next level, and uh, and maybe as I, as I hinted at earlier, uh, tap into that history, right? And this book comprehensively certainly is a great case for it, right? You you guys can help this club really pull out story after story, uh, personality after personality. Uh, contribution after contribution, and with a with an authenticity, uh, you know, extend that brand, perhaps even more. Um, I don't know, more honestly and genuinely, maybe than some of these other more well known clubs. Yeah, well, I think um, I think David made a very valid point before that um, we're, we're playing catch up, and we'll probably never will catch up with your Barcelonas, your Manchester United, your Liverpool's. I think we have to accept that. Uh, that said. There's definitely room for us to sort of expand our presence, get more people on board, um, learn about our rich heritage. But a few people I spoke to when researching the book made the point that the best way to get more supporters is for us to win things. So all the outreach, all the developments, hopefully more affiliations with uh, clubs and setups in North America are all very valid uh, and something we should do. But the thing that will really help us develop is for us to win 
some competitions, be that uh, cups or leagues back here in England uh, and Europe. So it's absolutely right what we're doing in terms of outreach and developing in the, in, uh, the States and Canada. But uh, we need to make sure that we're also focusing on our core business, which is winning stuff, which will draw in maybe the casual fans or get people who are curious to learn more about us due to our success. And then they will tap into our rich heritage and hopefully become fans for life. Yeah, look, I think it's a really good point because I think, too, there's the um, uh, there's a sophistication that is slowly but surely gaining steam in this country. Right. And we can debate on another episode <laughs> the quality and the legacy of Major League Soccer. Right. It has its faults and its single entity and 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 the, this codification of sort of the American way of doing pro sports. And, and did, did that have a sort of an effect sort of a, a, and sort of the Super League debacle and, and all that but, you know, again, it also is 25 years strong, right, which is how many years now longer than the NASL ever lasted, right? And, uh, you know, there there need to be some support mechanisms to kind of keep this game sort of going. And, and we, too, have to grow and win some regional and maybe championships and maybe some 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 deeper runs in the World Cup and all that stuff years and years after that was promised here. But uh, that acquired taste, right, as people become, you know, it's an embarrassment of riches, at least here in the States, right? In that we can watch just about every Premier League match now, all of the top leagues around the world. Uh, that certainly puts a lot of pressure on Major League Soccer to kind of figure out a way to to play and be in part of that uh, that landscape, right? And maybe never ever really being at that level, uh, you know, century down the road, perhaps we could talk about that. But you know, a club like Everton, right? To to the thinking fan, to the fan who doesn't want to be sort of you know, just a, a generic uh, a follower of just the big brand name and, and all of that, right? What Number one, what fun is there in that? Number two, um, there's also a, a recognition that there are dozens and hundreds of clubs all around the world that are uh, more than just a big brand name that are that's globally exported and have the biggest names and the biggest salaries, right? And And that's also, frankly, part of the beauty of the game, the fabric of the game, which is, I think now being reflected in this major rejection of this, at least for now, this Super League concept that that uh, is just inherent in the history of the game, where it came from uh, and and the, the, the challenge, the struggle, the not everybody wins all the time. The, the, on any given day, a team can and you want to root for some of those players. Right. And some of those teams and some of those situations. Um, and, I, you know, I think I, what I see in an Everton is is a club that has been there through thick and thin, uh, always competitive, occasionally reaching the glories uh, of championships and cups. Uh, and frankly, you know, is without the Everton's of the world, you wouldn't, you know, I, a lot of the, a lot of the uh, great competition in the premier league wouldn't sort of exist. And, and that's in many respects, to your point that people can identify with that. And, and that's, you know, I, to market the team, with some of those aspects and then layering in what I think hopefully through this book and this conversation is a very rich and largely probably unknown contribution in history to the game in the United States. I think that's a winning marketing formula. Uh, yes, Tim, I agree with you, but uh, I think you, you, the way in which you describe the club then as if we were a mediocre organization. And in fact, I would think of us as being a sleeping giant. I think in the last five, 
totally. In, in the last five years, there's been a revolution at Everton, thanks to Mr. Mashiri. Um, you may not know this, but the majority of the people in the city of Liverpool support Everton. Everton is the type of team that they support. You know, it, it goes with the culture of the city, which is, which I can assure you is a fine city. Everton are building this magnificent stadium on the banks of the River Mersey. Um, a new stadium, which was designed by uh, an, uh, an American, uh, and that should be um, should be built in the next three years. So I think you, you're going to see a tremendous change in uh, uh, in when it comes to Everton as a brand, as you call it. And uh, whilst, as Rob said, we may not catch up with uh, some of the the national brands, um, but we're certainly going to going to be a, a bigger force in the future, uh, and rightly so. And last question: With or without the Super League, do you care about that? Does it come back in some way, shape, or form? I, I sadly, I think that idea, that concept, will rear its ugly head again, and. Uh, you wonder where at Everton fits in all of that because you're clearly aspiring to to be that going forward or at least be at that sort of top higher tier. Um, seems like a double-edged sword. I think, uh, I think, as we touched on, I think there will be some form of uh, reform in terms of European football. It might not be a breakaway league. It might be that these big clubs manage to uh, use their leverage to get UEFA to change the format more of the Champions League to guarantee them more guaranteed places or guaranteed monies. So I'm sure things will uh, continue to uh, evolve in terms of uh, European soccer. Uh, as for Everton, we, we need to be in there. We need to be high enough in the league to be uh, competing so that we actually get invited next time if there is another sort of form, um, breakaway formed. Uh, it did raise a truffle with a lot of people when this uh, league was uh, announced the other week with six clubs from England one of which was Spurs. So you had this sort of new Super Champions League with uh, a team who hadn't won the English league competition in uh, 50 years this year, whereas uh, Everton, we last won it uh, in uh, back in the mid to late 80s. So uh, we should be up there. So next time there is a breakaway league, we should at least be in the mix to be considered, even if we don't accept the invitation. I think at this time, Rob, I would say that we were seventh. We're the ones who's on the fringes of this um, Super League. And you and I know that Everton have won more titles than Chelsea and Tottenham put together, uh, more than Chelsea and Manchester and Manchester City put together. Um, we just need to um, improve our current team, win things, and uh, I think our rightful place would be in the big six. Uh, I, I mean, I say that as a football fan, not just as an Evertonian. Um, when I think, I don't know who picked those six teams, but uh, the, you'd have question marks over, you know, certain uh, members of the six, uh, whether they are uh, uh, the dominant, have been the dominant teams in the English game. All right. Our thanks to Rob and David. And uh, we're sorry we couldn't also include Darren Griffiths in the conversation. But those are the three guys behind the book. That's fascinating. It's greatly detailed. And if you consider yourself a fan of the sport and its history in North America, uh, even if you're not an Everton fan, 
uh, or know nothing about Everton in the Premier League. Uh, this is a tremendous contribution to the um, uh, the uh, historical tomes of uh, of the sport. And uh, you'll find lots of great nuggets about the NASL. A little bit of the ASL is in there, some MISL stuff in there. Um, certainly the International Soccer League is in there. Uh, what came of the NASL afterwards and a lot of MLS too, of course, uh, as uh, the book is called Toffee Soccer Everton and North America. It is published by our pals at uh, De Cooperton Books. Uh, it is uh, available, I believe, as of June 10th, depending on when you're listening to this. Uh, if it's before that date, when you hear this, uh, order it from our links at goodseatsstillavailable.com. I'm sure you'll be able to find it on Amazon uh, or, or various other places where good books are found uh, and pre-order it, of course. Uh, if you're listening to it after June 10th, uh, why not order it immediately right this very moment? Uh, again, goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's the convenient place to find anything related to any episode that we've ever done, including the episodes themselves. Uh, just uh, bookmark that. And if you miss something or for ha- for whatever reasons, uh, the uh, show didn't show up in your feed. Well, there you go. You always have that as a backstop for you. And that's where you can find out all, all of our social media feeds and, and email addresses and all that kind of stuff. Our, uh, we're on uh, Twitter, of course, at Good Seats Still. Uh, on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. There's a Facebook page devoted to us, too. Uh, if you want to send us email, we're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And on the website, you can uh, uh, subscribe to uh, our little weekly uh, email newsletter where we kind of give you a tip sheet on what's going to be the episode coming up for the uh, week ahead. And like I said before, too, when you buy uh, books uh, or other forms of media from our website, uh, you're often, not always, but often taken to uh, places like Amazon uh, and we get a piece of uh, referral love, not very much, but a little bit. Uh, so if uh, you do want to buy a book or something from one of our uh, our guests, by all means, that's the way you can help support the show the best way uh, by doing that. Let's see what else. Uh, our thanks, of course, uh, to the good Dr. Jerry Payne. Uh, can't do this show without him. Thank you, kind sir, for your production extraordinaire this week. And uh, geez, I don't know what else, but uh, we appreciate your listening. As always, thanks so much, and uh, we'll see you next week. Uh, Probably not with soccer. I think we've given you three straight weeks of soccer. We'll give you something else next week. Look forward to that, and uh, take care, everybody. Bye-bye.